This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 66 of On Another Track. For me, I just find people incredibly interesting, and uh, I, love to, I like to go to the soft underbelly as well, and it's amazing. It's a bit like the psychologist's couch sometimes, you know? It's like talking to my older brother. You know, you're giving me good advice so I don't get in any sort of trouble. My older brother's name is David as well, so it kind of fits, you know? That's the voice this week of Richard Blank. He's CEO of Costa Rica's call center, a pinball wizard who has single-handedly reinvented the call center culture. Welcome along to my podcast series on another track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that have transformed my guest's journey and help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead, then you can't go wrong by learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. I first got introduced to Richard via our pod page website for On Another Track. There's a form that you can fill in and come on as a guest. And he did an amazing form. It was so detailed with all the information you ever need as a presenter to be able to interview a great person. And when I say a great person, Richard is absolutely amazing at inspiring people. And he's taken on the responsibility of training people in two languages, English and Spanish, in his call center. But he has a responsibility, and that responsibility is completely clear. He looks after 150 people with their families. And you know what? It comes right from the heart and the soul. Listen as he takes us on this incredible journey from Philadelphia via the best collection of pinball machines to Costa Rica. My first question for Richard was a simple one. Why was he motivated to reach out to us here on another track? You seem like the nicest guy. That's number one. And your material is entertaining enough to captivate it. You, you can sit through it. You can ponder. You can enjoy it. And you motivated me enough to reach out. And the fact that you have these sort of mediums where people can communicate with you directly, I took the liberty. And obviously, we're 3,000 miles away, but it's not the point that we can't be friends and share an hour together and, and to share ideas. So before we got on today, we were explaining a little bit about our backgrounds. And when sometimes you go through a tough time, instead of lashing out or doing the easy way out and getting into more trouble, what you did was investing that time for yourself and also to assist others. And so uh, once again, I'm, I'm here today to support what you're doing and to know your audience. And once again, just to say, go, David, go, because I think the work that you're doing is incredible. Okay, you've bigged me up enough now. My head won't get out the door, so stop it, okay? <laughs> but no, seriously, I do appreciate that because this, yeah. this this feedback is incredible. And I think, you know, it's very hard to get that back from, you know, your audience out there sometimes because people are so busy, you know, and they don't invest the time to to come on the program. They may listen, which is fantastic. Yeah. But thank you so much for for taking that time out to fill in your information and, and to come on the program. But here's the thing. You just alluded to it when you're in your uh, your spiel there. You're three thousand miles away, so tell the audience a little bit about you and how the heck you got three thousand miles away. We gotta go way back to Northeast Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Okay, I was graduating Abington High School in 1991, and like some of my friends that had opinions given to them and predestined careers set up for them, and going to Ivy League to study medicine, law, engineering, and architecture. I myself was more of a dreamer. I gravitated towards my favorite class in high school, which was Spanish. 
And I got the encouragement from my principal and Spanish teacher that gave me college recommendations to continue that studying. Now, that's a pretty big gamble. I mean, it's, you know, you're, it's a broad education being a Spanish communication major. But during college, I interned at Telemundo. So I got a chance to do promotions and public relations and use my second language skills. And post-grad, I worked for the importers of Corona beer. So once again, promotions, public relations, and Spanish. So I was utilizing what I studied. I was marketable. Out of all of my friends, I was the only one that was bilingual. And then when I was 27, a good friend of mine gave me an opportunity to move to Costa Rica for just two months to teach some English at his call center. And when a one in a million opportunity crosses your path, you got to take it. And so two months turned into four years of working with my friend. Now, mind you, it was more of my graduate school. I was in my mid-20s. And I was sitting with Costa Rican bilingual agents that were on the phone, speaking with clients, converting calls, and getting positive escalations. Now, I learned the business from the inside out. And being with the people, I could hear the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. And what I realized after all of those years and the experience that I got learning every facet of the business, minus the financials, of course, was that I could enhance the experience for the agent and for the client. And so you're probably expecting this whiz kid teenager, genius in his 20s. But no, David, it took me into my mid-30s to be mature enough, have impulse control, have enough money saved and confident enough to throw my hat in the ring and to start this business. So Richard, can I and just interject oh, there? I'm sorry, I know you're on a roll there, but there's a couple of- Oh, really, no, please do. There's a couple of really interesting things you sent there that everybody was going into the kind of the Ivy League, they were doing the architecture, they were doing all the different sort of things that were expected of you when you left school, you know, to go and pursue a, a program in university or something. Yes. What was it in you that kind of just switched that? I mean, you know, number one, you, you learned a second language, which for a lot of people is quite difficult, but- you were motivated. So where did that come from? It comes from within. And, and the Wu Wei, the, the philosophy of least resistance. It must have been in my past life or my future life. But in this life, I knew that Spanish was something that I gravitated towards. I was able to comprehend. There was positive reinforcement from it for whenever I spoke it on vacation or around the way. People were very receptive and, and were encouraging me to study more and making suggestions. And then how about this? Maybe, just maybe, is the path that was least traveled. Because why compete as a lawyer or a doctor? There's nothing wrong with that. But if I knew that if I were a public speaker and I could do it in two languages, I'm a one in a thousand. So I might get a job and my parents won't grill me anymore. And so <laughs> exactly. that was the first thing. But I also didn't want to force the fit. I saw a lot of my friends in college struggling because they were taking classes that they were supposed to. And unfortunately, a lot of them have degrees that they're not even using these days. So the one thing I knew that was true to myself was that I was gonna have some sort of foundation training that in and outside the classroom, it's applicable. And even if worse comes to worse, I'm bilingual. And I know that at least regardless of my career where I chose to spend my time and earn my money, that my life would be much more enriched and enhanced by having this second skill. And I, I knew that at a very early age in life. And so I guess I was just building on momentum, David, that's all. Very interesting. And I like your approach to life, you know, you, the, the path of least resistance. We often forget that can be a very 
honourable path, of course. It's not something that, you know, is criticised. It's just people don't always see it. They don't look at the bigger picture, you know. But you know what was interesting as well, that you went into a call centre, which is, that's quite a tough gig sometimes for people, isn't it? It can be really tough, especially when you're talking in a different language. How did the mechanics of that work? You did say that your friend offered you a job for a short period of time. What was it, what was it like to be thrown in at the deep end in that situation, which is a pressurised situation, the sales involved, and there's closing involved as well? Ooh, the way you make it sound like I would never want to do something like this. You're referring to the Wolf of Wall Street, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Boiler Room. Everything you've seen in the movies are the agents that weren't prepared that tell you how much they hate it. But let me put to you this way. There, there's so many ways to look at that. First and foremost, that this is a very strict Catholic country. So as much as I want to fulfill the needs of the client, I have to fulfill the need of the agent. And so they can be very selective of the campaigns that they choose. So, so we, we choose to bring in accounts, David, that won't compromise ethics, values, and morals. That's number one. Number two, since English is their second language, to me, it bears the mark of higher education. And so, A, just like myself speaking Spanish, they are getting a return on investment in their education. And also, it could be seen as a stimulation. Because in the United States or Canada, let's say if it's your native tongue, you see it as a transitional job or something that's a, a drag. While here, they find it fascinating. And to me, I take it a step further by encouraging a thesaurus so they can expand on similes and use more diplomatic and strategic vocabulary. And then also, fear is a morbid anticipation of things that haven't happened yet. So if I can reduce their fear by this medium of a gamification environment, by having pinball machines, Pac-Man and air hockey, I've created a safe zone for them. So I'll give you an example. You're supposed to come in today, 7 a.m. for your training class for your new account. No, David, class starts at 7.30. From 7 to 7.30, you're in recess. So you can hang out with the other 10 kids, meet me, the supervisor, laugh a little bit, have some fun. So when you come into the class, you're much more balanced and ready to go. So instead of just absorbing the material, you're confident enough to start contributing material. And so I see this sort of shift in people, especially since scalability is important and Amazon is in Costa Rica, David, so they're snatching up so many agents. It means that you and I have to bring in the freshmen, the ones that are have the skill set, they just don't have the experience in a call center environment. They can teach them the computer and the phone system. But the one thing you and I are going to do, my friend, is mold them with very good habits and giving them a level playing field, supporting them with their material. So there's no second guessing. And so by creating this sort of neutral environment where they can make friends, they're supported, the boss knows their name, we break bread together. The chances of attrition, the fear that you were mentioning, the stress that they have, all that's thrown out the window because we're focusing on the art of speech. And, and today, with non-voice omni-channel chat, filling out form support, it's very informal. And it seems to be more of the norm. So if we can go back to writing in cursive and also learning how to speak with people, you're still showing the art of written and spoken speech. Oh, man, you so speak to me. You really do. I mean, you were... That's good. Yeah, well, that's the <laughs> point, though. You know, I mean, I, it's, it's in your heart and it's in your soul, this type of environment that you create for your people. Because 
you know, often as not, it's the, the penny pinchers, it's the people that do the figures that really drive business. And we understand that, you know, that's been like that for a long time. Yeah. But you have to be a bit of a maverick to really push the boat out. And you probably did this a long time ago. This is not recent, is it? This is something that you probably pursued maybe, what, 10, 15 years ago? Am I right in thinking? This type of approach? My good friend, I've been on a vision quest since I was in my early teens. And I had these sort of imagery of where I was going to be. I was... I was always very concerned about getting caught up in the rat race. Like if you ever watched those videos, like uh, Freddie Mercury and David Bowie had a song under pressure and it shows a certain section of the video when all the people are being shoved into the Japanese rail carriages. And that concerned me. Or when you're watching these sidewalks in metropolitan areas with the thousands of people walking in their suits and briefcases in one direction is as Pink Floyd, the wall going into the grinding meat machine, it sounds enticing or it's what you're supposed to do. It just felt like I was selling out and I was selling myself short. I could have always clicked my heels, David, come home and get a job, but I needed to live with myself. So at least I had to throw my hat in the ring and try. Oh, you know, well, you have to live with yourself. I mean, that's one of my sayings, you know, I like to go to bed with a clear conscience, sleep with a clear conscience. And for me, that's so important. Yeah. So what, um, what barriers did you get? What resistance did you get? If any, I mean, because we're talking about a different culture here in Costa Rica. Was it one of open arms? They understood where you were going and, and you know, speaking to the soul and building people up and giving them time to breathe. Or was it something that you had to try and just gradually change the culture over a period of time? How did it work? No, no, it actually was a beautiful transition and, and it happened immediately. By coming into Costa Rica and investing my youth and mastering their language shows very good faith. Once again, a lot of the things in Alberta, Philadelphia, that we hold dear and important really don't have a lot of value overseas. And so um, you really are just showing them your essence. And I think that was very easy for me as well. Little did I know that I would be embraced where I could be feeding 150 families a month here, wow. building a business here. And so, as I mentioned, it kind of spiraled and built upon itself in this momentum. Now, that was Costa Rica. Now, prior to coming here, I did have a few naysayers, gray believers, and Debbie Downers, and negative Nancys. And, and usually, David, these are people that know you well, and they love you, and they're part of your circle. And what I've noticed, and it's, and it's not their fault, it's just in regards to perception, that their N-O means that they don't K-N-O-W. Enough about what I'm trying to say. Unless you learned a second language, moved abroad, started a call center, Thank you for your advice, and I appreciate it, <laughs> but it's really not going to assist me. And so the best thing that we can do is just to keep some open minds. And, but here's the thing. If you can get past your parents' guilt, David, you can pretty much live anywhere in the world. So on a personal note, I had to not prove people wrong. I almost had to show my potential, and I had to do it sometimes in a selfish way where I had to back up how I feel even if I disappointed people, and that was temporary because they just didn't understand. But now that the story has a happy ending and everyone's winning, now they could say, oh yeah, I believed in you the whole time. Well, yes and no. I mean, you always did, but maybe some of that other stuff was able to ground me, focus and balance me, 
And collectively, we were able to work off on that, enabling me to get to where I am today. You know, you said something very profound there, and it's really interesting. A number of the interviews that I do, getting over your parents' guilt. I mean, that was so amazing how you just expressed that. It's heavy. It, well, it uh -huh. is because I think, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to be talking about the British culture, but it's not unlike the American culture in terms of the way that we're brought up and the structures that we work within and how guilty you feel by letting your parents down. You know, it's it's kind of endemic in, in the way that we're educated, you know. Uh, but what I liked about it was that um, you found something like an inner strength to say, excuse me, F you. I mean, I'm not saying it in a bad way, but it was more like stick two fingers or one finger up and say, I'm going to pursue this and I'm determined. And that was great because you would take the naysayers and the nose and things like that. And great, you know, that they have their opinion, but I loved how you converted NO into a KNO. And so th th there's a lot of determination there, but is there a lot of kind of anger there as well, Richard? Were you angry? Not at all. It no. was always love. Okay. It was more, it David, it was more disappointment than it was anger. And when you're by yourself looking at the mirror, sometimes you have to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? Because a lot of the times people will quit 80% in. And maybe as growing up in Philadelphia or the way my grandparents raised me, because they were raised by parents that went through depression in the United States. And so a lot of the values that I hold dear are what comes from my family that came from Europe to the United States to start their businesses. So they were entrepreneurs, they were tailors, they worked in sales. And when they came over at the turn of the century, they started off from scratch with very thick European accents. So what's the difference? It's just me doing something else as well that two generations ago did. And so I, I'm trying to make not only them proud, but I also believe that it's in my blood. So if my parents are feeling comfortable living in Philadelphia and Arizona and just chilling, and just figuring that is, well, it's because you paused for a generation. We're nomads. Sometimes we go where we need to go for better lives. And that's what I decided to do. Oh, I absolutely adore what you've just said there. And it's very interesting, actually. And I'd, I'd love to talk about family in a moment, actually, because I don't want to go back to the call center first. Mm -hmm. But you are so much the story of, of the new world, you know. But again, it's these different kind of, I call them wide junctions, but forks in the road. You take a left or a right. It leads you somewhere, you know. And don't be frightened to make the choice. And you weren't frightened to make the choice. That was the important thing. So I want to ask about the call center, because this will be of interest to people in business all around the world. Logistics of setting up a call center, did you do it from absolute scratch? Was it, you know, did you have any experience from, you know, doing a call center in the U.S. or working in an environment like that previously? Yes. When I was with my friend for the four years, I didn't do anything in regards to the financial or the C-level side. But throughout that time, I was in a customer service, retention, sales, customer support. I also did accounting, onboarding, training, and also learned affiliate management, which is search engine optimization. So... I learned more than enough. And as I mentioned earlier, when I realized I could enhance the experience, I understood the leverage. So I, I, I could roll the dice. But um, so let's say we were starting this business. My, I, I put up my website October 4th of 2007, and I landed my first account February 6th of 2008. It was one seat for 50 hours. Now, I didn't have that call center space then. So what I was doing was renting a station from more of a blended or a mixed center. It was more of like an open floor plan, no real private office, 
You put in your people, but it's a turnkey station. They had the IT support, the security, and a, the headset, the computer, but it just wasn't private, right? And so I could pay my people, pay this guy, make a margin, and start growing from there. And the moment that I landed that first account, it wasn't the size of the account. It was more of the shedding the skin of one past life to a new life of something that was created and you could build on that. I you know, the one in a million snowballs chance of actually hitting it. And the fact that something did happen, I realized that I should really take care of this spark and it could grab. And little did I know that a couple months later, I was up to a couple dozen agents and I realized that I should start saving my money so I could start renting space and building it out. So after about two years, I was comfortable enough to spend some money about, you know, close to 70 grand to be able to build out a 150 seat station where I was renting. And so you're able to purchase secondhand furniture from call centers going out of business. Some stuff's still in the wrappers. You're just buying it used, but it's never been used. And so by being smart, frugal, and having people, not myself, because they'll charge 20% more because I'm a gringo, but local contacts to bring you this stuff, I was able to save tens of thousands of dollars ramping this thing up. And so after two years of paying per station, I rented space for about six years. And after saving enough money and weathering a storm in 2010, I was capable of building a three floor business that can house 300 seats. And in fact, you can see the bricks behind me. And I know that you're expecting me to tell you about taking out mortgages, loans, partners, but once again, that's not how I was raised. It might've taken me 14 years to get to where I am today, but I was able to sleep at night. I could weather any storm. I had a ton of resources to handle that. And I only the only partner I have is my wife that built this business with me. And so I wish I could share some sort of quick way to do this, but it was really brick by brick. Now, now, now don't kid yourself. I just wasn't saving every penny. I am an avid collector of pinball machines and jukeboxes and retro games. And, and from time to time, I'll go out and have sushi and have a good time. But I was also smart enough to know that acorns will allow you to survive the winter. And I learned that real fast and real young. And so as a businessman today, I could have been footloose and fancy free and, and doing the whole shebang, but I'm not a shebang kind of guy. I, I, shebang will come when I retire and I can count my chips then. And then I can realize how many meals I want to eat and, and, and what I want to do to, to enjoy my time. But until that happens, I have a lot of responsibilities for people here. It's not about myself. It's about these 150 families that I have to ensure they have their job stability and that everything is paid. So um, I wish I could give it to you in a certain sort of flair, but it's slow and steady. Like that third pig that built the house out of bricks the wolf ain't blowing it down. That, that's me. That's me. brick by brick. That, that's what took me to get to where I am today. Oh, Richard, you are just amazing. I love the way that you talk because, you know, um, you, you still don't hear that enough today, you know, and it is the traditional values. It's the way that businesses were built way, way back, you know. And if you build them on those same foundations, like you say, you have the resources to weather because you've got to remember, haven't you, that business – is such a roller coaster. It's an amazing roller coaster and it can be great and exciting, but it can be extremely depressing and can, you know, it can put you down under. There's no doubt about that. Right. What was been some of your 
biggest challenges, if you don't mind me asking? What have been some of the, the side swipes that you've managed to weather? What, what would they be? My competition. I compete against Amazon, HP, Intel, and Oracle. Now, I'm not complaining, but I, I my 150 seats versus 10,000 seats and Jeff Bezos. He's on every billboard, every newspaper, every bus, sign-in bonuses, flexibility with scheduling, closer locations, your boyfriend or girlfriend's working there. So, I, David, I will lose most people on natural attrition. They'll leave to me because of their school scheduling, you know, and certain things like that. Rarely, if never, someone is going to walk out of here saying that Richard defaced me on the floor, didn't give me enough resources, and embarrassed me, didn't pay me, was mean to me. That doesn't happen. I would respect somebody after working with me if they are moving on to shake my hand, let me know we had a wonderful run together, and we could wish each other well. Because if someone's been with me for years and they don't give a two weeks notice, and they just disappear and peace out on me. I don't regret spending time with them and breaking bread and playing that. That that that's my job. I'm I'm true to myself on that. I would have expected that individual to start the relationship strong, David, and end it strong. Or it's not even ended. It's a continuation because I, I bumped into people at the mall, at the supermarket, just just around the way. And they've moved on to not saying that I was the be all end all, but oh no, highly marketable individuals that might be studying things that they went to school for or had other opportunities to grow other areas. And we'll say, hello, we'll see the families, we'll talk. And they'll always say, Richard, you, you really were wind in my sails. You, you gave me that confidence when I was 22. Now I'm 28 now and, and look what I've done. And, and so relationships are, 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 strangers are friends you haven't met yet. And so individuals that haven't worked with me for a single day don't know me. And after they've worked with me, I would still expect to say hello with you. I'm not your boss outside the office anymore. We had time together. And so maybe I think of it a little bit differently, but no, you said it earlier. Every interaction, every relationship that you have should be taken into consideration and has extreme value. So that's the way I think about that, my challenges. Very perceptive. I like it. So here's the $64 million question. What makes a great employee? Somebody that puts their ego aside. Somebody that is capable of being coachable. It's not easy. And people say constructive criticism. Okay, whatever. I, I believe that if you're the best improvement is, is self-reflection. And since we're in an industry where your calls are graded by quality assurance through metrics and KPIs, David, which are key performance indicators, there is a certain structure where we listen to your calls. That's what I pay you to do. What I expect the agents to do is to have additional soft skills, ask a follow-up question, right? And do certain things with active listening so the client has a better experience with you. But, you know... If they can listen to their calls as an arbitrator, as a neutral third person, they're capable as much as they want to improve themselves. If they are knowing that they're too loud, too soft, too fast, too slow, are they interrupting? Are they not pausing enough? Were they not active listening when it came to the military alphabet when we're repeating information? And so it's almost like looking in a mirror. 
mirrors don't lie. And we're fortunate enough to have these sort of recordings to our agents, besides grading them on their job, I specifically go over the phonetics and the soft skills with them. And I've seen two types. I've seen those that are coachable and that are willing to um, improve their stability and their delivery. And then I have others which have bad habits that they brought from another call center or it's within themselves and they're not willing to change. So if you come back to me every week and haven't practiced your violin, I'm gonna know. I mentioned this rebuttal to you earlier. You're supposed to do a positive escalation with the gatekeeper by letting the decision maker know that this individual transfer in the call is amazing. You forgot that. You forgot to review this stuff since you have me on the phone. Do you have any additional questions for me? Why didn't you mention that at the end? You could have reviewed something. Stop being a print and be more of a painting. Stop being a character, David, and be more in character. Remember to still be raw and have the essence that what got you into doing this in the first place. Because when people are too well rehearsed and they know their lines too well, they become plastic. And those are the sort of things that will just make any sort of interaction less effective. And uh, I wanna add to that, they stop listening, don't they, as well? They do hedging. They go, yeah, okay, um, all right. No, because if someone's repeating information to you, David, and they say, yeah, I live on one, two, three Main Street. Okay, it's not okay. Main Street's dangerous. <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes in certain questions, they should say, David, you said one, two, three Main Street. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you. And so a lot of my agents through hedging, through bad habits, through just act, you know, being lazy in regards to their interactions with those with whom they're speaking, once again, they're not paying attention. And there could be that one in a million shot where a dog is barking. And instead of just saying, oh, excuse me, put the dog outside, first I can use a me too technique by saying inadvertently and passive aggressively how much I love your dog. And it's obvious it's barking. But then I'll do the follow-up question, David. I'll ask you what the dog's name is. And you will say Fluffy. So then we laugh about Fluffy for a minute. You put Fluffy outside, you come back. And then we anchor there because that's usually when you ask me again, what my name is. And me, I use a buffer boomerang technique where I say, David, that's an excellent question. My name is Richard Blank. So those are the sort of things where instead of me pitching you, you know, forcing a hand or, or angling a call, the best moments are on the calls that. And so if people can just take a step back for a second and relate to people in that way, I think that instead of making a hundred phone calls a day, David, for a, a telemark, make 89. Why don't you spend an extra 30 seconds to do some due diligence on the company or LinkedIn just to know the company culture? Or maybe if Fluffy happens to come up on the call, why don't you just stop for a second? Talk about the dog with David, because at the end of the call, it's going to be great. Both will be great, the dog and the call. And I just want people to slow down because they're anxious, they're thinking about the future, they're depressed and thinking about the past. Very, very rarely are they in their balanced, centered now. And there's other tips and tricks I can share to, to keep you focused like that. But to me, I, I really just want them to be very active listening and engaged in their conversations. Are you halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson? 
isn't Richard just such inspiration? Uh, next, I want to ask Richard a little bit about quality versus quantity. We did hint at it uh, just before the break, but I really wanted to see if you got an analogy that you could give us that really illustrates the point really, really clearly. Sure. And, and if I can refer to an artist, my friends that draw and they paint and they are commissioned from time to time, they'll do amazing work and they're proud of it. But the work that they love the most is when they're not commissioned, when they're drawing or painting on their own. Now, once again, I'm paying for these people to make a phone call and to be here. But if they can have that sort of artist mentality of being free on the call while still having structure, I encourage that. It's much more fluid. It's much more lucid for them. So they can really, once again, close their eyes and imagine the people that they're on a conversation with. Follow this. We're in a controlled environment here. And a lot of the times the best conversations are when you're using your five senses. So if you and I are out at a bar having pizza and, and, and drinks, all five senses are kicking in. But when we're on a phone call, most of the time it's non-visual. And so you're eliminating immediately three things. You're eliminating your taste, touch, and smell. And since some of your senses have been eliminated, David, the scientists do say others expand. So I'm expecting you to show more active listening. But then again, people are saying you don't have sight on a call. Well, I say quite the contrary. There is metaphysics there. And most people claim that reading a book is 10 times better than the movie because you use your imagination, you have those adjectives and descriptions. And so once again, if people in 160 hours a month controlled environment, non-visual calls, they should be expanding those two other senses that they have. And so I can see that when I'm grading them and when I'm with them. And if they can tap into that sort of vision and that sort of balance, they're just not going to be average telemarketers. They're going to be aces. They'll be legends. They'll be the people that you gravitate towards on the floor to sit next to so you can high five, listen to, and feed off of their energy. Enough of me. I'm looking to delegate and promote from within. And so I don't want people kissing my butt or, or, or angling it or playing office politics. I, I do it purely on merit. You could be with me for one day. You could be with me for 10 years. Be 18. You could be 50. I don't care. You all got the same shot at it. And if somebody shows grit, they show up on time, front row center, pen at the ready, good kid. I'm dying to promote you. In fact, if you're even younger, it's even more important for me because you and I can mold them and be a wonderful mentor and influence for them. And I bet you can spot a great listener at mile, eh? You can. But once again, I'm learning these people for the first time. They could be putting on their best front. I'm going to teach you a secret. You're going to love this. So they're filling out their resumes with me, right? Putting in all their experience, the bells and the whistles, and all of their characteristics on why you want to hire them. And I think that's great. I turn it over and I go, hey, David, do me a favor. Could you write me a couple paragraphs on a coming of age moment? And they'll say, what's a coming of age moment? So then I explain it to them the first time you beat up a bully or save the kitten from the tree. And so I get to gauge their English grammar and spelling and you know, vocabulary. But I also get to see the time when they won. And so you get to see a little bit in depth of this person. And it's not to start strong. It's for that rainy Tuesday 
when they just got off the phone with someone that said F you, or they're just out of rhythm. And so I will remind them of the time when they won. And if it's something that is where it really gets them off balance, we take it off the floor. There's no scene. Every, everybody wants, no, no scene. We will go somewhere. We will decompress, a little water on the face, coffee and cookies with me. But then I'll also let them know that they're out of character and that they're better than that. You're up in Alberta. I'm from Philly. We know what we need to do. And we go 15 rounds. I will bend you. I just won't break you. But how do you expect to master the next level if you can't master this level? And so the best thing for me to do is to reassess, reset, restructure, and to get this individual to learn, to learn not from their mistake, because it's not a deal breaker. They didn't break any labor laws. They were just off for a minute. And so the best thing we can do is to reserve and preserve their dignity so they don't spiral out of control and take the easy way out and just quit or go get drunk at lunch or just not try anymore. And then you just see a fading flower. And that's just, um, that's a shame. And there's things outside the office, David, that we can't control. But if you and I can recharge their batteries and give them that sort of job stability, maybe when they leave the office, they, they can conquer what they have out there and then come back the next day ready to go again. Totally, totally a holistic uh, view. I, I really, really admire you for that because it takes guts in, in the business world to do that. Yeah. And like you say, you've got that competition out there, but, you know, your retention rate. Um, what competition? Jeff Bezos hasn't played pinball with them. You and I are the ones eating pizza with them and ribs with extra sauce. You tell me. Isn't that a real boss that eats ribs with you? I totally. I mean, I mean, I'm totally, you know, we're boxing the same corner here. You know where I come from, you know? <laughs> it's feel, felt, found. It's it's about what people feel, what's in their their soul, you know? How do we address that and how do we enhance that? And That's right. as you say, it's that you want that flower to grow and just be beautiful and uh, you make other people beautiful. I mean, it just sounds, you know, I think in the North American world, and this is the shocking thing for me, coming to Canada and North America, from, from the UK, Mm-hmm. I was very, very shocked how how cutthroat it was and how hard it is on human beings, you know, in terms of their soul. And that was really shocking for me. And it's something that I couldn't get to grips with at first. And almost you have to insulate yourself a little bit. And then you don't become an active member at work. You don't become an active member of society because you end up hiding away because it's easier to hide away from the pain. And what you were talking about, you know, people go out and get drunk or they just give up. That's the easy way out. The hardest bit is to say, look, I can help you, but you've got to make the effort. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll show you the path, but you've got to walk it, you know, and I think you're very much like that. And I, well, the, the impression I'm getting as well is even when you have somebody who's very challenging, you see that rough diamond and there's such an, a beautiful, oh, what's the word, feeling that you get when you finally hone that lovely rough diamond and you said, I saw something in you. And they're ultimately successful. And those must be some of the best things that happen. Yeah, but David, the only way to see that is to be able to be okay with yourself first. Yeah. Because if I'm not complete, how can I expand my branches and roots? So thank God right now I'm lucid. I'm shining. I'm very clear because I give myself a lot of me time, my own meditation. I I like to work out in the morning wash cars on a Sunday and play pinball watch. I can't do Easter meditation. I don't have that sort of discipline, but I am capable of giving myself enough time to decompress, to reassess and to prioritize. 
And so, as I mentioned before, once I'm okay and I'm settled, then I'm capable of seeing things a certain way. Because if I'm in a pissed off mood, then I'm jaded. And what you're saying that I saw crystal clear, I'm not going to see because I, I'm seeing everything as a nail and I'm a hammer. And all I want to do is just knock away. But no, I've been happy for a very, very long time. I, I've been pretty much happy my whole life. But ever since I was really true to myself at 27 and expanded upon that and married the girl of my dreams and started a company with her. And um, I live a luxury trade. I live in Central America. I have a business. My company runs so well that I can jump on a podcast on a Tuesday afternoon with you for an hour and still make money. And my company's running great. Once we are done, I go back into some meetings, but I didn't miss a beat. I have everything where it needs to be. And so I'm capable of taking this time. You, everyone says, oh, you're so busy. Well, if I'm so super busy, then I don't have good time management. I haven't delegated. I'm not bragging to you that I'm overextended. That's stupid. I mean, maybe if I'm putting 80 hours this week, it's because I'm preparing for the following week. This is not catch-up time. This is preparing for the, it's almost like a chess pair. The, 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 the grand masters are thinking five steps ahead. They're not catching up. And so some of this work that you see me do, which might seem excessive because I'm a business owner, I'm not behind, I'm ahead. And I have so much energy in me, I got to put it somewhere. And one of them right now, and I've been on this kick for the past 60 days, are these podcasts. And they say, Richard, are you selling? I have nothing to sell. David, put your checkbook away. There's no seminar. I have no book. And most of you people don't even need a call center. And so I'm just really here just to share ideas with you to make a very good friend north of me. And, to, and I'm going to say it a second time and to support what you're doing as you are supporting me right now. And so if your listeners can take anything away, look at two friends that are hanging out for the first time face to face. Look how we're treating one another. We're taking your podcast very seriously. We're discussing things that are not um, amusing. This is not a joke. These are two professional businessmen that are talking about certain stages of life. And as much as I try to put a happy spin on it, well, I am relentlessly positive. I have to be. Do you want to hear about my tough times? You really want to go there? I'll tell you about a thousand things that went wrong. If you want to hear it, or I can let you know that during those times I was resilient. I didn't quit. As John Wayne said, I'm going to die with my boots on. I wasn't going to quit. And so I can look at myself in the mirror today, give myself five and say, I am so proud of you. Look at you, look at you. And it's not, it's not any sort of insecurity. It's my own personal reinforcement because my ego is fine. It's my id, it's my soul, it's my essence. The fact that I feed families here, and I'm not just a one-man shop racking it in and stacking the dollars. The fact that I can see people improving their lives and these multi-general families where their grandparents and parents live with them, I hold that sacred, like you have no idea. And that, my friend, is why I believe that I am in the stage of my life where I am today. Wow. 
Well, um, you know, it's it washes over you. The, the kind of you're feeling that, you know, it's great. It's a lovely feeling, uh, Richard. And I think it's... You bring uh, it out of me, David. You're, you're, you're interviewing A+. Plus, man. Well, you know, the, the thing about it is, is that you speak so clearly to me because that's the thing that I've always pursued in my life, you know. With Queen's English, you're complimenting my English <laughs> and my accent. <laughs> You've got great really? accent. Really? See, that's it. teasing. Look at the British humor teasing me. <laughs> well, Thank you. <laughs> you know, you guys are just jealous. You can't do sarcasm to save oh. your life. Come on. <laughs> but anyway, joking apart. But here's where I want to go now. You know, we, we briefly mentioned family before, so I want to dig into that lovely soft underbelly of Richard, okay, and his family. You did mention a little bit about it. Yes, and I want to just see a couple of things, a couple of really clear things. You know, where where did the history of the family come? You alluded a little bit from Europe and, you know, we're all immigrants to a certain extent. But also what I want to know is who and when in your family did somebody influence you in such a profound way? You know, how did you pick up these great attributes and, and those feelings that you can now convert and, and put them into a business and support other people like you're doing? Well, when my great grandparents on both sides came from Romania and Russia, and then the other side, my mother's side was Germany and Poland. When they came over there, as I mentioned before, they were tailors. So my great grandpa, Louis, looked beautiful <laughs> in his suits. He looked great. And on the other side of my family, they, um, we're working once again in sales in Philadelphia and doing this sort of layaway back in the day, door to door, and seeing this sort of drive and vision that these heavily accent English second language ancestors I had where they, but it wasn't even the business side. Okay, great. They, they gave us a, a, a wonderful upbringing with all the fixings and, and were very generous in regards to my education and my extracurricular activities. But the one thing that I loved the most about my family was when we used to go from Philadelphia to New York to my grandma's house, or I'd visit my grandpa in Florida. And we would continue our family traditions from the meals that we had, the conversations we had, the stories that they would tell. When grandma would open up the old book and show us the old black and white pictures and tell us about all their friends and family. And I gotta tell you, in their youth, they were so good looking and so cool. And their fashion with the hats and their jackets and their ties. And I couldn't believe it. I go, you guys were the coolest cats in town. And I couldn't get enough of it. And so I guess once again, just by seeing these young men and women that I'm older than now, but I'm looking at my great grandparents in their youth that were young, that took the boat over through Ellis Island and started from scratch and built these businesses. I was just so proud of them too. And I didn't know what else to say, but I guess it's my family tradition and I had to keep it going. But I, I find those old photographs and stories amazing. And if you ever have the time to sit with your grandparents and parents, I would record them and have them tell the stories about your aunts and uncles, because when they're not with you anymore, you won't have those stories. And my mother knows those stories inside and out, pass them to me. And I tell them to anybody that will listen. And that's very important for me. And, and most of the stories we tell are just universal stories about smiling and, and being kind and open-minded. And if someone offers you food, you always accept. And if they offer a second plate, you take that too. <laughs> and you do all the right things. And, um, it's just fun that way. 
And so that's pretty much how I was raised. And it, it was just a very simple way to be raised. Mm -hmm. And so interesting, I can relate to that coming from the Celtic culture from Glasgow, you know, and uh, Northern Ireland, you know, the Celtic culture was very much about sharing that plate with people. You know, the, mm -hmm. if somebody came and lived next door to you and they didn't have anything, you'd give them your last bag of sugar. That's what you did. That's right. That was so important. All day. And, um, but, you know, you also speak to my heart when you talk about the old photographs and, and talking to them and recording it, which I've done, as you, you know, no doubt be surprised. But, um, you know, and I think you yeah, absolutely that that art of conversation and just being with family and listening to those great stories sets you up for life because all the lessons of life are in those stories. They're fantastic, you know. All the shortcuts on how to make your life better. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we haven't talked about brothers and sisters. We talked about mum and dad. By the way, first of all, before we talk about brothers and sisters, let's put a name to mum and dad. My father is Arthur Blank. My mother is Jane Koppelman Ash. And my older brother is David Blank. So it's my big brother by four years. Mm -hmm. He's a brilliant real estate um, investor and broker and um you know, once again, my brother went Ivy League. He studied finance and economics at Washington and Lee, which is Ivy League. And I studied Spanish communication in Arizona. And um, once again, he was following in our family's footsteps and he did so well. And he has other passions as, as well besides that. But um, as I say before, my brother had such structure and discipline and was a very good older brother by protecting me. And you know what was really cool about David, David, is that when we would play sports in the backyard, he would never let me win. Oh, seriously. He would always compete. I mean, he, he would give me noogies from time to time, and you know, and, and as older brothers do, but um, he never let me win. And so by David having four years over me, it really increased my competitive spirit there in regards to athletics. And and he was cool too. I, I'm going to share a secret with you. It's illegal, but I'm going to tell you anyway. When my brother was 21, he gave me his driver's license. Oh, seriously? So when I was 17, I had a driver's license and I could go to places and purchase beverages. And by purchasing these beverages, I was able to have some very fun parties in high school. And I was voted the class partier of 1991 because I had traveling parents, uh, keg party and responsibility. And it really enhanced my experience junior, senior year in high school and my first couple of years in college. So uh, you want to talk about a super cool older brother hooking you up? That's the deal. And so um, hopefully with this statue of limitations, it's been a very long time that I used my brother's ID. <laughs> but uh, anybody that's been in college that has that, obviously, it really makes your experience that much better. I told you, it's like the psychologist's couch, this program. We like to dig in there and find out these things. But, you know, joking apart, here's the interesting thing. And I'll admit to things as well. You know, in the UK, we were much more relaxed about alcohol and certainly in Europe. And so, yeah, absolutely. You went to the parties at 15 and you took the bottle along, you know, oh, yeah. didn't advertise it too much to the parents, but you did it. <laughs> it was the important thing. You have to. The one rule I learned is if you trash the house, it's over. The house was cleaner when they used to come home on uh, Sunday night. <laughs> then I'd get in trouble. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? I'm leaving evidence. <laughs> so, so funny. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, my parents would come back and say, what's been happening? And we'd, we wouldn't say a thing, but you could see his faces. Why is the trash taken out and the floor's clean? <laughs> Fun times, fun times. But Richard, one, one, one question I wanted to ask you when you were younger, and, and this is always very interesting, I find, is 
what aspirations or dreams did you have when you were, you know, very young? You know, for instance, did you have the dreams like lots of people have to be a, you know, a space pilot or an astronaut or, you know, to drive trains or, you know, something like that? What were your dreams when you were younger? It always revolved around adventure. Maybe when I was sitting in school and I was looking at these creeks and rivers like the Susquehanna River that would go by our high school, I always would say to myself, all right, let's just get into a raft, sit in that thing and see how far I could go. Um, I never was complacent being in just one place. And as I mentioned before, Philadelphia was very cold in the wintertime. So I always dreamed about going to someplace that was much warmer year round. And maybe again, with all of my friends that knew at a very, very early age what they wanted to do, I kind of was holding out. I was just waiting. And every single vocation that was being mentioned to me didn't sound like fun. And I don't know if I could have done that. Was it scary? No, it was actually quite enlightening. Because as I mentioned before, I had certain interests that people were reinforcing with me. And these interests were things that made me uh, versatile. It, it made me unique. It made me different, but harmless. And so as I say before, it was just really about building upon itself. I Okay, fine. Did I want to be a fireman? Sure, I wanted to be a fireman. But I think when I was really, really young, I maybe wanted to be Tarzan or something because yeah. I always thought that was kind of cool, swinging from trees and living, you know, free and animals and stuff. But I don't think I could have survived being Tarzan, <laughs> you know, with camping. But um, I don't know. I mean, when you're eight years old, you're different from your 18 to 28 even 38. And oh, David, it, mind you this, you know, when I, at 35, I started my company. So imagine when I was 15, I had no clue about even wanting to run a company. And so you could look at yourself differently from your hairstyles to the clothes and friends that you have, the music and your tastes. But I, I think a lot of it has to do with priority. Maybe when I was a little, little boy, my priorities was having an adventure lifestyle, an exciting lifestyle, not a bored lifestyle. And then when I was in high school, I realized, where are you going to go to college and what are you going to do? And then in college concerned me about investing that time and wasting that time. And then post-grad, I realized I was marketable and then pff, the rest is history. Forget about it. I used to remember going on to job interviews before the phones and you'd have four or five people reading a newspaper in their suits, looking all serious in the waiting room. I wasn't reading anything. I was checking out the room. I was icing them out. What am I reading about? I already know what I want to talk about. So when I would go into the interview, I would ask if I could stand. They say, of course you can. <laughs> of course I'm going to. So you know when you're standing, you're going to be 20% better. And I'm going left. I'm going right. They're laughing. And when I walk out the door, everyone's looking at me. I go, good luck with that. Try to match that. You know, super ice amount. When I could be Richard and I could have my conversations and stand and express myself, you got my best. You got me sitting there for 20 questions and you're grilling me with bad breath. I'm going to want to get out of there. And you're not going to get the, and you know what? I don't even want to work there. You're probably going to offer me the job, but yo, David, there's the last place you and I are going to want to be at. You know, you and I were going to want, it's not the right place to be. It had to be a perfect fit for me. So you could get the best out of me. 
I, you know, I, again, I so totally relate to what you're saying about interviews because for me, interviews were always the best thing, you know, about a job. Oh, yeah. You go in and you have a chance to perform. You're on stage. It's the theatre. You crush it. You know, you give them the best of you, you know. But it was lovely. People get so nervous about interviews. And I said, no, just forget about the paperwork. I mean, when people used to come, I interview them for jobs as well. I said, well, there's your resume. You know what I'm going to do with that? I turned it upside down like you said. Now tell me about yourself. The first thing I say is, can I stand? So immediately they're not looking at my resume. They're like, go ahead, young man. <laughs> and then, you know, I saw, and then check this out. I just wouldn't start pitching them. I would analyze their room because I told you I did micro expression reading. So I'm analyzing their trophies, their pictures, their plaques, their, their golf stuff. So while I'm going to explain to them my job and using examples, of course, I'm going to be using the stuff that you like. Uh, these are easy sort of manipulation tools, but as long as this individual could put me on a level playing field to observe the environment that I'm in and to stand, I'm breathing better, I'm moving better, and I'm working your room. So that just worked to our advantage. And, you know, you're doing what the, the basics of great sales. You know, we don't, often as good salespeople, we don't even think about the mechanics. We just do it very naturally. And we're building those bridges and you relate it to what the environment is that you're in at that current time. And yeah, but I got to ask you a question, my good friend. And you're mentioning sales and I appreciate that. And yes, you and I could be considered salesmen. How about this? Let me throw an idea at you. You and I don't force a hand, right, or twist an arm. I believe through the philosophy of from an educated point of view, make a decision. If you let me go 15 rounds, if I can go A to B, one to three, and I say everything, it's mine to lose. As long as you allow me to make my case, let me give you three examples. I'll get on the phone with people and we definitely want to do together. There's synergy. We're perfect fit. We literally are almost brothers, but here's the situation. They want 24 seven support. I don't do graveyard shift. We stop at 10 PM. So that would disqualify it. They want uh, Chinese language support. We, we don't speak Chinese at my, I could, but if I personally can't understand the call, I can do it in Portuguese and Spanish. But um, if I can't personally understand the call, then I would feel uncomfortable ethically having a rogue agent just cursing or doing something crazy. And then the third thing is price. I can't match India's $1 an hour as much as I'd like to gain your seat. So from an educated point of view, David, unfortunately, I can't match India's rate. We don't have Chinese language capacity and I'm not 24 seven. So from an educated point of view on my end, I, I would have to reject the offer of working with you. And as much as they try to convince me, change me, it's not gonna happen. David, you do not speak Chinese. So there's no way you and I could take the account. And so I'm not going to force that. And ethically, I'm not going to take your account. I'm not going to take your money. I won't do things like that. And so most of the time as a consultant, I work backwards. It's almost like Sherlock Holmes deductive reasoning. I'm almost taking away as much as I possibly can. So whatever I have left is indisputable and irrefutable. And so if it makes sense at the end from both of us, so we can, we can do business on a level playing field and both leave something on the table, we will move forward. But if you're asking me to do something outside of realistic expectations and to what, to, to reverse psychology motivate me? Come on, realistically, you could only make 10 calls an hour. How am I going to do 20? I can't increase time. 
But if you're saying, well, Richard, we can do, you know, 0.5 an hour and you are saying you could do one an hour. Can you do 50% more than me? Well, David, if I put your list in a predictive dialer compared to manual dialing, if you use Richard's training, my supervision, my QA, my script writing, and my observations. So instead of making 100 calls a day, you and I mentioned 89, but my conversion ratios are much larger than yours because you're plasticing these calls and not even trying and we're active listening. Yes, then maybe I can show you that I'm worth that rate and get the seats and get the business. And so there's so many different ways to see if I'm a good fit for people. But you know, a lot of it, once again, has to do with being specific, measurable, agreed upon, realistic, and time frame oriented. You know, and I think you being upfront about that is amazing because it sets the goalposts up for success. I mean, I just love that cards on the table approach. For me, that's just the way I culturally do it as well. Right. Interesting enough, um, you know, from your perspective, if you wanted to attract somebody into the business, you know, stay at the ground floor level, are you looking for people to come into the business that you've currently got, you know, in different parts of the world or specifically in Costa Rica? Sure. Are you talking about people starting their own call centers? No, not necessarily, but maybe employees. You know, what makes a great employee? What, how, how can you attract people into this business that you currently have? And, and what type of person are you looking for? The, the, the company culture, because as I mentioned before, there's a lot of call centers here. So it's a seller's market, these agents of options, Amazon, for an example. But, you know, a lot of people at a smaller center can make a better name for themselves. They might get more attention. They can build upon their skills in their career. Maybe some people want to have the boss and individuals know their name. Uh, maybe they like the fact that we have popcorn Fridays and I break bread with them in the game room. Um there's so many factors involved in it, but uh, how about how about this? Anybody that would like to know me, work with me, or take the time to be introduced to me, I'm willing to give anybody the benefit of the doubt. And the fact that if somebody's a different culture, that's even better because the offshore call centers in India and the Philippines are very different from the nearshore call centers in Central and South America. But guess what? We have a lot of the same goals in mind and a lot of the same soft skills. Some of the differences are language capacities, maybe some cultural differences. But I think for the most part, these professionals are trying to give the best service that they can. And I think that's wonderful. And as I say before, these are these non-voice omni-chat supports where people are filling out forms and chat. And they're not speaking with anybody and, and you're eliminating any chance for an upsell, for a referral, right? Or, or, or a retention in case somebody might be thinking about leaving you. And also there's a chance to get some feedback, even if it's positive or negative in regards to your company. And so all of these things are so important for you to be able to build upon. And the world's getting smaller. And the fact that you're in Alberta and I'm in Costa Rica and we can just jump on this sort of Zoom call is incredible. And so my, my only suggestion for anybody of everyone is just make sure what you choose to do, it does not compromise your ethics, values, or morals. You can earn a dollar. Do it the right way. Do it the way that you were raised so you can go home and tell your family what you do for a living. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally feel that 
everything what you just said there. It just relates to me so well. Richard, in terms of companies that you would like to attract, and I'm not sure if this is the right question or not, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there an opportunity for companies to reach out to you who would like a call centre based around English and Spanish and Portuguese, for instance? Is that something that you're actively pursuing at the moment and, and talking to companies? Always. Absolutely. Now, there's many types. There are some very large companies that would need my centre for an overflow because of their staffing. There's some smaller companies that might have a half a dozen guys working in their office, but they're not aware of the sort of infrastructure and the sort of systems that we have here that would be able to increase their productivity and their vigilance and the morales of the agents. And so once again, anybody that's looking to compare apples to see if a bilingual agent in my sort of structure could match or exceed the sort of numbers that they're doing at corporate, the things that's happening today with COVID where people are either having agents work from home or just closing their offices altogether, these are options for people. But, you know, for the most part, I think it more revolves around the structure that we have. Because if you got a bad script, a bad list, and a bad company culture, you're just going to fail anyway. But if you need that sort of um, consulting and the way that we write scripts, give the rebuttals, or just the comparison to the other verticals that I have to show them the sort of metrics, to show them the sort of patterns that I've seen other areas that may be of interest to them but as i say before i don't want anyone to write me a check on the first day put your checkbook away anyone that contacts me i try to earn their business not by five hours on the phone i'm not going to teach you how to ramp up a call center can't give you my special sauce but if somebody comes to me with good faith and just wants to run an idea by me the best thing i can do is no surprises and i'm not your yes man i will let you know if i like the tone if i believe that the rhetoric is appropriate I'm going to ask you specific questions to know if you're being forthright with me. Have you made these calls? How long have you done it? What are the metrics? What's the contact call to conversion ratios? What's the average talk time? What's your CRM system look like? What phone system are you doing? What's your list look like? What sort of training and onboarding do you do? What sort of coaching and support do you do? And as much as these people try to dangle an account in my face and they try to explain to me their experience, which is fine, and they have experience, I hate to say it, after 15 rounds of me walking backwards and asking you all the questions to see if you qualify so I can fulfill your needs, they realize that I know what I'm talking about. And as much as you're going to tell me that Joey can make 20 calls in an hour, no, you can't with a 15-minute talk time. It just doesn't work that way. And your wrap-up time and your note-taking. So instead of letting them know that they're being facetious, I will usually ask them to clarify it in another way for my own edification. And once they can't do it a second time, then David, I make suggestions for them. I hate to say it, but I gotta take them to school. And maybe if I can teach them something, then if they're prospecting other call centers, they'll ask better questions. Or if they're calling me, they're gonna judge me on merit, not just on price or their own unrealistic expectations. Well, thank you for that. That's uh, extremely clear. And uh, like I That's said- That's a power bomb. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, but it's, it's good. You, you know, you, you, set, you set the goalposts up, you know, this is the expectations, you know, and I, I like mm -hmm. that. Richard, mm -hmm. if somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the easiest way to reach out? 
to call your local airline and buy a first class ticket and fly down here. Come on, David, you know that. But if you're not flying in this week, what you can do is you can give me a call, 888-271-6750. You can shoot me an email at CEO at Costa Rica's callcenter.com. And, and may I make one final suggestion? I have a very large Facebook fan page, about 97,000 local Costa Rican Ticos that are, can't wait to meet my friend, David Wilson. And so um, you can go there and you can get a pulse on what's happening within the Costa Rican call center environment, which once again, we have a democratic society, no standing army, 95% literacy rate, the best infrastructure in Central America, wonderful culture of poor vida. And, and so join there, you'll see what's happening during the day and after hours, we're a lot of fun. Um, but David, I can't thank you enough. I mean, I. I thoroughly enjoyed not only meeting you this way for the first time, but but really spending some quality time with you and your audience today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, Richard. You've been an inspiration. And for me, you talk so much like I do and from the heart. And I, I just absolutely adore it. I think you're just, uh, no wonder you're successful. And no wonder your people are successful. There you have it. Any, any English grammar advice for me, please? <laughs> any suggestions? <laughs> well, I don't want to do it live over the air. I might embarrass myself because my Scottish accent might come out and I'll start saying looking book and food, you know? <laughs> yeah. But there no, you. but I, I, I love this sort of stuff because obviously you might think that we're worlds apart, but no, sir. The only thing separating you and I is just a very cool accent, but you and I have so much in common. <laughs> well, you know, it's always, they always say it's a common language, but the meanings are so different sometimes. And that's the fun of it. It, you know, that's what I absolutely adore. Richard, before we go, I, I just wanted to say one more thing, and I think this is very important. Is there anything else you'd love the listeners to know uh, about what you do and your environment, um, which will inspire them? Yes, of course. Empathy. That's all. Just compassion. I'm in a certain position where I have leverage. I could make or break somebody. I could hire or fire you. And I believe that you judge somebody's true character when they have that sort of position. And I give empathy in abundance. You might see that as a weakness. Why? Because I have a heart and you take advantage of me one time, one time. But the one thing that I know that I will be consistent on is that I care. And that is the easiest code to crack as the best foundation that you could have for yourself and for your business. And it will only ensure that people are going to come back tomorrow and they're going to want to fight harder with you than they're doing today. And so that would be my final thoughts to share with you and your audience today. Richard Blank, I want to thank you very much for coming on the line. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure's mine, David. Thank you. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Richard Blank, CEO of Costa Rica Call Centers, a pinball wizard who's reinvented the call center culture. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.